One of the fascinating things about the Book of Mormon is the fact that we have an Old Testament believing, law of Moses following people that are introduced to the doctrines and blessings of Christ while still living the law of Moses. Even more fascinating is that people like Alma and King Benjamin begin to change the way that their people respond and the, the way that they live. Their religion is being changed. But in doing so, they come to find out that the law of Moses was pointed in that direction anyway. What a conundrum. And how do you begin to appropriate some of the elements like washings into something like baptisms under a Christian view of things. This whole section, as we come through the book of Mosiah, is interesting to watch an Old Testament people become New Testament and to do it 140 years BC before the birth of Christ. Join us today as we talk about Alma and he's, as he's creating this new community and he's doing it with new information to a people that were ready to be taught, but had no idea really everything they were getting into. And welcome to another Monday morning Book of Mormon class with Kevin Hinckley. Recorded live, we dive deeply and deliberately into this inspired scripture. How far we get? in one class depends a lot on the material and the doctrines left for us by ancient prophets. A single chapter may occupy one class or many. Of course, opinions expressed by the teacher or the class members do not constitute official church doctrines. Join us in this adventure and discover the hidden treasures found within its pages. And now, on to the class. Let's go ahead and get started today. Uh, it is uh, Halloween, and uh, we're here. <laughs> um, I don't know if you've got any wild plans for uh, tonight, other than keeping uh, trick-or-treaters at bay. Um, but, I, but I also know that uh, part, of, part of what you're hearing in things like Halloween and, and stuff, there's a, there's a uh, from those that are a little bit more culturally sensitive or pushing back sometimes about uh, cultural assimilation that it's like you, if you're not Native American you're not supposed to dress up like a Native American or if you're not you know Japanese you're not supposed to be dressing up Japanese because they've got that that culture sitting there and we're not supposed to steal that culture um, I think it's it is interesting though and, and it will come into play here about what happens what we do with culture and church and how that gets translated through our culture is a, is a pretty fascinating uh, kind of thing. So, so l l let me set this up uh, with a, a you know, story we, I think we kind of know. Uh, and that is, remember in the early days of the church when, when uh, the saints are gathering in Kirtland. It's 1831. They're, stream they're coming out of New York. They're coming out of Fayette. They're coming out of uh, Colesville. They're landing in Kirtland, a lot on the Morley Farm. Um, and, 
and and they they're starting to have these principles they've read the book of mormon they they're having some a handful of revelations and they're learning these principles like we should conduct meetings under the direction of the spirit okay we should be spiritual and it should be directed by the spirit okay what does that mean what exactly does that mean you know in it meant one thing in palmyra but they quickly found out in Kirtland, if you're going to direct a meeting by the Spirit, it meant something completely different. Anybody know what was going on in Kirtland? Is that, is that familiar? Yeah. Isn't that where uh, the, the uh, a number of people appeared to them in in Kirtland? They did, but before that. Like, like these days, if you go to the Morley Farm and you kind of go up a long dirt hill, there's a, there, there was a schoolhouse up there. And they, would, and they would get all of the meeting people. They would meet there, right? But in Kirtland, their understanding, because they were part of the common brotherhood, they had their cultural traditions of what it meant to, uh, to run a meeting by the Spirit, which was the, the way that we would interpret that would be like very Pentecostal. So they would, we're going to do it under the direction of the Spirit. That might be jumping up and running up and down the aisle, you know, and uh, this is where uh, Luke, um, what's his name, does a backflip out of his chair. <laughs> um, and uh, some, of the, some of the brethren would get up and they'd start talking about the Lamanites and the Lamanites need, need to hear the gospel. And, and they, would, they would get into the aisle and they would get down and it's like, I'm rolling to the Lamanites. I, you know, you know, rescue the Lamanites, you know. And they're just, and so it was just noise and it was cacophonous. And it was, and Joseph was watching this going, we weren't doing this in Fayette. <laughs> what are we doing being so crazy nuts with all this spirit stuff? Um, and really what he had to ultimately get to was the idea of this was the way that they understood uh, the simple idea of running a meeting by the Spirit, but their culture interpreted that differently. Does that make sense? Okay. I think if we were to watch, if we could somehow go back and watch a sacrament meeting of Latter-day Saints, like in 1850, we might be surprised by what we see and what we hear and how the whole thing is done because it's the culturally it shifted. Okay. So... One of the challenges that comes, and we're going to really see it when we start talking about Alma, the great ta challenge that we have uh, is that we have principles of the gospel that you can get out of the scriptures and things that, that we believe. So we have the principle. Um, what happens, though, is that then it has to be translated into practice. What does it look? Boots on the ground. How does it actually look when we when we actually do it? Okay, yeah. Well, this is actually happens in today's world too. You get. I was raised on the East Coast, where there were very few members, and most were converts. Right. And so they were getting a lot of their direction from the handbooks because they had never seen things in practice. Yes. It, uh, you know, there were a few members that had come from Utah that knew how the church was organized, but there were a lot of areas that were not. And so I saw a lot of things that people went up to them and said, 
Okay, next time we do it this way. That's right. Especially in a lot of convert areas today, where they carry things over from what they think it should be, or from their previous. That's right. And sometimes, though, that's also run into. We would say, "Well, we don't do that in the church." Yeah. And what were we really saying? We don't do that, don't do that in Utah. <laughs> okay. You know the the old story we've talked about before with President McKay coming down to the Turtle Creek Building in Dallas. On a July day, and everybody's just sweating like crazy, and he's saying to them, "How come there's no air conditioning?" And they said, "Well, we don't build our buildings with air conditioning. <laughs> At least in Utah, we don't. <laughs> you know, put put air conditioning in the building. It's it's not Utah, okay? But the belief always was the Utah culture was the church, and it was hard to separate that out. But we have tended to be pretty homogenous." whether we're in Japan or whether we're in Ghana, to say, this is how the church operates. And, and to a certain extent, that, so, we've, so we've trained people in all these countries to do it the Utah way. Now, and, and so there is a, a, a uniformity of how we do that. Now, ultimately, in the, in the future, will we continue to do it that way, or will there be more allowances made for how Africans might do it? Well, sometimes I think we're getting that. Uh, you know, I would like to see, for instance, more, more drums in an African church might be kind of fun, or, you know, sitars in India, or something where you just begin to take on the flavor. Uh, but, but that's the challenge. How does it translate? What, what does it look like? Um, so, so part of what, what we're looking at when we start going into the book of Mosiah boy the, the more you dig into Mosiah the uh, more complex and the deep this book really gets um, so, so let me give you an example of this we start with uh, we've been talking the last couple of weeks about the role that the uh, uh, law of Moses played in all of this. So, so let's remind ourselves. If we go back to the Doctrine and Covenants, let's look at what, uh, what, what Moses had in mind when he, when he received the Law of Moses. What was his goal? Well, the uh, Doctrine and Covenants 84 says, Now this Moses sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God. What was Moses' goal? He wanted them to be sanctified, see God, be sanctified. He wanted to bring them into the presence of God like Enoch had done and like Melchizedek had done. I mean, he's had these as his predecessors and he's got them there. I would like my people. Uh, now, the, it's interesting that the wording on this is kind of interesting from section 84. It says, but they harden their hearts and you would expect that to be, they, if you got a hard heart, you would not endure his presence. But, but section 84 changes it to could not. What, why is that different? What's the difference on that? Why would it say could not? That they, that they weren't capable of doing it? Why? Well... <laughs> When you are, because he'd invited them, 
Yeah, Come on up to Sinai. I was just here. It's awesome. Come on up. And they're like, oh, no, we're not doing that. Yeah, their whole idea of God. In fact, this is really a core issue of our religion is who is God? What is he? What is he about? You know, what is your understanding of him? And a, a lot of people throughout the ages have feared him, not the fear of respect and awe, but you know, just genuine fear. He, he scares us to death, yeah. Does that mean they physically could not endure? I don't think they could physically endure. Section 88 says, who is it that can endure the presence of God? I thought we couldn't endure the presence of God if we weren't worthy, if we'd be destroyed. Not just worthy. You've got to be changed. In other words, you can't endure that, that glory. It's too much. It'd be like, can you go from a dark room into a bright light and keep your eyes open? No, you're not capable of it. You just have not been, trans your, your eyes haven't dilated enough to be able to, ha you can't do it. It's a cannot. And he said they couldn't, okay? Wouldn't they also, uh, if they, there are people that have, like, uh, even Cain um, spoke to God, but still he did what he did. If you see, if you go beyond what your capability of, it's a curse to you. It can be a curse to you, yeah. And so sometimes I think the Lord has protected people by not showing himself. Think about the brother of Jared who's kind of being walked slowly into his presence, almost by ascent. And, and that's what the temple is, by the way. It's a step-by-step -step walk back into the presence of God. But by taking on covenants and promises and demonstrating that we've done it so that we're, you know, we're changing, we're being transformed by the, the atonement to be able to bear his presence and everything. And so that's why I think it's interesting. Doctrine and Covenants said Moses really wanted them there, but I think the Doctrine and Covenants is right. They couldn't do it. So what do you do? You got a group of people, and the goal, the goal ultimately is to get them back into the presence of God, and they're not able to handle what He was going to give them. So, what's the what's the alternative to that? The law of Moses, which would be what? It was the teacher, or the preacher, it was the instructor, the pointer towards Christ, you know, step by step. Okay, so it's going to actually educate them. So, the goal then of the law of Moses would be then to what? Prepare them, teach them, step by step, get them ready, give them information, take them from where they were to where they're going to be and where Moses wants them to be. Does, does that make sense? And he's going to do it because they were very... And again, at this moment at Sinai, let's remind ourselves, are the children of Israel more Hebrew or are they more Egyptian? They were Egyptian. They spent 400 years surrounded by idols and pagan worship and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and in, the, in the shadow of the pyramids, they're more Egyptian. You've got to start where they are if you're going to move them to where they need to be. So initially then, Moses is then going to receive the law of Moses, which is going to be a series of physical performances and rites and rituals uh, with, the, with the goal to prepare them for Christ. 
So it's going to be all about Christ, teaching about Christ, teaching about the sacrifice, teaching about how to sanctify themselves. All of the things about the law of Moses were to prepare them for one day to be able to go in, back into the presence of God. Does that, does that make sense? Okay, now, here's where, here's where the problem comes with performances and ordinances and rituals. What happens when you keep doing the rituals and ordinances, but you lost the reason? What happens if you're all dressed up, but you don't know why you're dressed up? Halloween. Yeah, Halloween, that's it. Yeah. yeah. What, what, if you're take, what if you're taking the sacrament, but you lost focus on why we're even taking the sacrament in the first place? Yeah, you change your focus. Which, you know, as, as I'm growing up, we had... We had guys in our stake that the sacrament offered some opportunities there and they would, they would freeze some of the sacrament cups full of water and then they would drop those in sacrament trays so that people would pick that up. And <laughs> Which to them was hilarious, right? Uh, so it's like the, um, the... You lose the purpose, but you're still doing... You're still doing the ritual. And for a number of people that have left the church, what does the temple and the, and the ordinances of the temple represent? How come women are sometimes veiled in the temple? What does that tell you? Men are in charge. <laughs> it's, all, it's all about men and women don't, you know. They're gonna, in other words, they're going to put their meaning, their interpretation on an ordinance, on a ritual, put their meaning on it, and then say the, the Mormon church or temples there is, you know, is a patriarchy and it's just designed to put women down and, and, and the temple's going to be first, uh, is the first uh, evidence of that. Okay? So, so look at what's happening here. Uh, so, oh, so now we get all the apostasy over the years between uh, Moses and all the way down to Ju King Josiah and the Deuteronomist, where there's a period of time where there is other, other rituals going on. Sometimes it's, it's pagan. Uh, they're still sort of doing the, the law of Moses in the, the temple, but it's kind of lost all of its meaning. So that meant that when they looked at the law of Moses, now we're doing it, but we've lost the reason why. So, so let me ask you, in for King Josiah... And, and we're going to double down on the law. What did the law represent for them? I know. Why would you keep the law of Moses? Why would you kill people that wouldn't keep the law of Moses? They believed if they kept the law of Moses, Christ would, or Jehovah would protect them. Yes. Ah, uh, there we go. So what was the purpose of the law of Moses then? Protection. Protection. It's about safety. And that means that if it's about safety, what if the people aren't keeping the law of Moses? The, the, then we're unsafe. We're in danger. So, so what they found is the law of Moses then, it was, it was about safety. It was about power. It was about control. And if you're the Sadducees, if we go all the way down to the first century, you're a Sadducee and you're in charge of the temple and you get to 
administer the rites, the temple rites of the law of Moses, there's another added benefit to the law of Moses, and it would be revenue. revenue. <laughs> you can get, a guy can get really rich administering these ordinances. Just depends on how much you want to charge for the sacrificial animal. What kind of interest do you want to charge to change drachmas into temple money? You can charge high, we could make a lot of, we could live like Romans. We could build really fancy places. We are very observant, law of Moses people. So we'll live the law of Moses. And we're going to get filthy rich while we do that. It's such a deal. We are... Learning all the steps to advance, never hearing the music, and you have no... Yeah, that's a good example. You can perform the steps, but you're not... In but you're not hearing the reason behind it. Absolutely. It's a really good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. I am so glad now that I remember when I first joined the church if a girl, if a woman had painted fingernails, she was, uh. it was just a little bit too much. And now you see these young girls with purple, blue, whatever in the temple, and they're just as worthy to come. As yeah. And we, and we have a tendency to do that, don't we? When you become rule-laden, law-laden, you can lose sight of what the, that, what the purpose was. To bring us to Christ, or to, or you could use the law as a way to say, I can tell who's worthy and who's not, who's righteous and who's not. And that's what meant, the outer vessel. We can get focused on that when we get caught up in that. Did you see Sister So? She's wearing. She wore a sleeveless thing to sacrament meeting. Really? Ooh. <laughs> that. Okay, I'm just not saying anything. I'm just saying, you know, it was a little skimpy. Couldn't see any garment there. Okay. <laughs> in Louisiana, they got a, a mission president there who, because they were a branch, that would not uh, allow any of the missionaries to go without, without <coughs> missionaries to go without a hat. Without a hat. But the women... Uh, he thought that that, and he preached it from the pulpit, that it was absolutely sinful and vain for a woman to wear a hat and gloves. And if you were in the South <laughs> in those days, you wore your little white gloves and you wore a hat. That's right. And I remember that even when I was <laughs> Yeah, and see, I think that's, see, and isn't it interesting how we can take, so we can laugh all we want about the Pharisees getting caught up in the law of Moses and how far can you walk on a Sabbath day, but think about how, how many times we get caught in the weeds uh, with, with taking our own rules and laws and then go, now we're going to codify them and we're going to use it as uh, Adam Miller says, as an accusation. Uh, a, a commandment is an accusation. Are you obeying it or not? If you're not obeying it, bad. Obeying it, good. Regardless of what your intention is, or your purpose is, you're ticking all the boxes. Okay? Yeah. I had a problem years ago. I was directing a play and we were practicing on the stage. And it was the era of the skirt, just about the length of your arm. And you could look up and see their underpants. So I had them uh, wear uh, slats. Uh -huh. And I was severely chastised <laughs> for, for uh, having them in pants 
uh, on the stage uh, instead because uh, they were supposed to be in dresses. Yeah. I know, I know. I know, I was just listening, I was listening to a podcast this week. Guys, this will be shocking to you. Listening to a podcast by a, a kid that is just finishing his full-time mission. Uh, he's in his last transfer, uh, and he's in California mission. Uh, he submitted his papers uh, as an openly gay uh, member of the church. Uh, the church looked at it hard. Uh, and called him on a mission and with the idea that he would be not just openly gay but he would be serving as an openly gay uh, elder. Okay, now you take a look at your own how you would look at something like that you can imagine how sometimes he was received in certain wards and stuff like that where they knew this, this elder is gay and is that okay? Oh, I, don't, I don't know, I'm not sure what to do with that, right? But he was. But uh, if you listen to his testimony, he has uh, such a sweet, powerful, Christ-driven uh, testimony. He doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. He doesn't know what. He's not sure what happens after this life. All he knows is this is who he is at the moment. That the that the church has issued the call. That he served a fabulous mission, and he loves the Lord. Okay, <laughs> you know, culturally, we're gonna. We do whatever we do with that, right? Um, but that, that's the challenge. Um, so, so when we're tracking the law of Moses, um, and so now we're going to get all the way down here to, first of all, Abinadi. Then we're going to go to Alma, and then King Benjamin. Remember that... King Benjamin comes about 20 years after Abinadi, even though it's not, it's not in chronological order in the book. We think it's King Benjamin and then Abinadi. It's actually Abinadi 20 years earlier. Okay? Uh, now, so you've got these people, and here's what they're doing, and here's the challenge. And I really kind of want to land on this. Here is these prophets being taught about Christ, and, how, and, and the role of Christ, and how to create a Christ-centered community. And they're teaching it to a law of Moses-believing people by performance, by culture. They're Old Testament law of Moses-believing people. And they're going to say, now we're going to bring Christ in your midst. And the question is, okay, so now how do we look at the law of Moses, because basically they're saying the law is fulfilled in Christ. Okay? But if you look in the Book of Mormon, when is Abinadi preaching? If you look, if you look at the top of like, like Mosiah 17, what year are we talking? Somebody look that up. Mosiah said, look at the top. What year is this? Pretty close to Christ. It's what? 148 BC. Ooh, wow. 150 years before Christ is even born. And now we're saying. You've been living the law of Moses, but now let me teach you about Christ and what he's going to ask us to do. 
and he ain't even come yet. <laughs> we're we're going to obey it as if it's in the future. But it's fulfilled. In the future, but now. Well, that's... Make that mind jump. <laughs> Ooh, that's, that's kind of interesting, huh? Okay, so, so let me ask, for these guys, Brent, if you're one of those guys, what does the law of Moses mean to you then? You start hearing about the doctrine of Christ. Well, 150 years before he's even born. Hey, the, more, the better preparation you get, the better opportunity. The better you understand it. Yes, and, and I'm going to use the law of Moses as a way to prepare me. Okay, so now how are you going to interpret the law of Moses? If you've got a filter of Christ, and now you're looking at the law of Moses, whatever you're doing, I don't know how much they kept the law of Moses after. I don't think they did. Because now it was about Christ, and because Alma's about to bring him the church. He's going to organize a church among these people that were living the law of Moses. Well, you know, the, the, the one thought I have on that, the law of Moses, as you said, there's always comparison for the Christ. Yeah. Well, as soon as you're prepared, you have to wait longer. Yes, because as soon as you know him and you understand him and you want to embrace his principles, but now you're going to say, so what do I do with this law of Moses thing that I've been living? Oh, I now I've got to reinterpret it. It's got to be it's got to be used, turned. So now what do I do with it? Now see this is this is so in talk to your Christian brothers and sisters. Go and talk to those that are doesn't matter whether they're Baptist or Episcopal or something like that. And 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 you say, What purpose is the Old Testament? What how important is the Old Testament to you? It's not important. Why? Good stories. It, it, there's some little moral stories that, that yeah, that uh, Noah thing teaches us some things, stuff like that. Because that was the old covenant, and when Christ comes, that's the new covenant. That's why you have an Old Testament, and it's a New Testament, which means they were the covenant people. They blew it when they killed Christ. So what does that say about us as Christians? We're the new covenant people. This is supersessionism. We're now, the Jews failed, Christians have got it. Uh, if you happen to be a Baptist in a particular church, you're the chosen people. You are the chosen people. That's right. That's how the, that's how, I'm, the, I'm now the covenant people and God wants you to be prosperous. Isn't that the replacement theory? It is the replacement theory. Yeah, the supersessionism. Yeah. Just one thought I would say is, you look at the Old Testament, we don't study the Christian no. However, that's all the people had at Christ's time. It was sufficient to prepare them for the Savior. It's good right. It's all Paul had. Paul, Paul, Paul converted all of the, uh, you know, everything he did in the, in uh, the Mediterranean, and Matthew had never written his first words yet. <laughs> you know, he did the whole thing with the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, I like your statement that you just said that's all that Paul had except he had personal revelation. He did. So I think that's so, uh, a deeper understanding for us too that we should also be seeking as the prophet is now telling us. We can't make it if we don't have personal revelation. Yes, understand the scripture. Yeah. But what is your relationship with Christ? Right. 
And, and if I have personal, if I have the inspiration, I pray for it, now I'm going to understand what Psalms means. Now I will understand what Isaiah meant. Now I'm going to understand what Daniel is teaching me. Suddenly the Old Testament lives under inspiration. As opposed to just being, well, that's, that's of no benefit to me. That's the old stuff. We don't do the, you know, again, I had a, a guy coming on a Wednesday night trying to tell me, you know, that Abraham was an adulterer. And therefore, you know, we don't care anything about Abraham because he had more than one wife, you know, Mormons. <laughs> okay, yeah. Just another thought with respect to what's Paul had revelation. And I think our prophets preach the same thing as today. We've got the quad, which we all accept as scripture. Right. In addition to that, we've got prophets and apostles and additional revelation that gives us additional insight and told we ought to be paying a lot of attention to it. Yeah, and, and can interpret. And interpret not just the Old Testament, but and also interpret the Book of Mormon. Because there is a sense, too, where the Book of Mormon is Old Testament-ish. Okay, there was prophets preaching the best they knew up to that moment. And so we rely on, on uh, prophets now to kind of translate their words. Yeah. Um, God has always been a God of love. God is love. It's always been that way since Adam on, since the Ten Commandments were given and everything. But, you know, the commandments became prescriptive. People are afraid of making mistakes. Yes. And we are culture. We are part of a bigger thing. And if you're not fitting in, so you're worried about not making the standard, so to speak. And you can really see Satan's hand in this how this this God of love who gave the commandments of love becomes commandments of fear. Yes. Right. And and we lose the bubble. And so you can really imagine when Joseph Smith came about. And, you know, they had this mechanistic idea of the universe of his time, you know, from the Yeah, yeah. And then he says, no, you're not predestined. God is a God of love. He isn't looking for another opportunity to beat you up so that he can beat you. You know, so I think that's just incredibly beautiful how all of this is... Yeah, but but you watch them wrestle with it. And and I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Watch a group of people wrestle with how they take their understanding from the past and then assimilate new information. Jim, you had a comment. I I was going back to where you're talking about the law of Moses being fulfilled and how the people felt. Uh, I don't think it's much different than we feel today how it's going to be when the second coming of the Lord comes. Yeah, I, I think I mean, it's a mystery, and when it happens, we'll and, and, and that's right. But we don't necessarily know. That's that's why it just makes makes me. I heard again this week somebody saying, "You know what? If such and such is going to happen in the celestial kingdom, I don't want to be there because because I would be miserable." And I think okay. There are two things I know about the celestial kingdom. One, we're going to be more joyful and more happy than we have any understanding in mortality. One. Two, we have no idea what it looks like. <laughs> None. Regardless of what Party Pratt was trying to think it was, and literally, okay, we have no idea. So the fact that somebody might be in the celestial kingdom and miserable is just laughable. <laughs> On... 
so many levels. We got, you know. So anyway, so we go from, so, so but again, let's go back to, here's Abinadi, and he's now preaching Christ. And Alma is going to then cre- preach Christ and create the church, which, by the way, they didn't have in Zarahemla until he shows up. We'll, we'll get there in a sec. Okay. Um, so their purpose of the law of Moses would be that it's leading them to become a church and people of Christ. That the purpose of the law of Moses was to get us to Christ. And that we're going to utilize what we know in the law of Moses and assimilate it and, and, and change it a bit. Because the Savior is going to draw at least two ordinances that I know of from the, law, from the Old Testament law of Moses and create Christian symbols out of them. And we're about to see one of them. Okay? But he's using law of Moses. People and principles do that. Okay? So, how are we doing so far? Does that make sense? All right. Hot diggity. Let's get it. All right. So, here's Alma's challenge. Alma is going to have this challenge of taking the doctrine of the law of Moses and turning it into a series of practices in the church of Christ. How do I do that? What does it look like on the ground? And I think it's the same thing that Joseph Smith was trying to say. What does a church of Christ look like? What things do we keep? What things do we throw out? What do we do on a, on a weekday? What do we do on a weekend? What do we do when somebody's sick? What do we do when somebody needs help? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And we're going to use the principles of Christ to do that. Okay, so let's, let's do this. Um, I'm going to hop over to... Whoops. Let's go to Mosiah 18. Okay. So who was Alma? Oh, he was one of the priests. Hold on. Let's go backwards to just a second. Let's go back. Let's go back to when we first get introduced to King Noah. And I want you to think Alma while we're doing this. Verse 2. For behold, he did not keep the commandments, but he walked after the desires of his heart. He had many wives and concubines. He caused his people to commit sin. He put a big tax on them. Put that in your mind for just for the future here. But look at this. For he put down all the priests that had been consecrated by his father, consecrated new, new ones in their stead, such as were lifted up in the pride of their hearts. Okay? What about Alma? He would have been one of them. Okay? Hold on to that idea. So this is Alma. He's one of them. Yeah. What gave Benjamin the power to consecrate priests? You mean, you mean Alma? Well, no, Noah. You know, he comes... Oh, 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 oh. The king of, king of England. 
Yeah. Well, I think that's an, that's an excellent question. You know, if he's the king um, and he's going to administer all of these kind of things, what does give him the right to do that? He's not a Levite. The divine right of the ruler. It, it is the divine right of the ruler and the law of Moses. I'm gonna. I, we don't have Levites, so I'm gonna. So I'm gonna decide who gets to be priests. Um, and and but, but I think that's just a just an excellent point because the question is going to come up in just a second with Alma. Yeah. yeah. Doing everything else wrong. He certainly doesn't want priests telling him. No. So no. He's make sure that he has everybody oh, yeah. He's going to make sure that he hires all of his yes people, and that would include Alma. Okay? Alma's young. He's one of the younger ones, so he's going to do what the elders are doing. Uh, yay. They became idolatrous. They were deceived by the vain and flattering words of priests and king. They did speak flattering things unto them. They build all kinds of nice things. Uh, they have these nice uh, seats that they're going to be able to sit on. Uh, they might, again, we talked about this uh, Mormon snark. <laughs> they might rest their bodies in their arms while they did speak lying and vain words to his people. Okay. So anyway, what does that tell you about Alma? He's, he's one of these guys. Okay? He's got, he's got wives. He's probably got concubines. He's got, he's, and, we, and we don't want to picture Alma this way. But Alma was one of the priests. So that's why when we go over here to 18, what's the first thing he needs to do? And it came to pass that Alma, who had fled from the servants of King Noah, repented of his sins and iniquities. So, so the thing that I love about Alma is that he's been there. And he's somebody who had struggled uh, with sexual sin. And now he's repenting. And now he's in a good place. And he's able to preach. This is Repentance works. I, my heart has changed. I recognize that I was deceived. Okay, so now he's going to go about, and he's going to go about uh, preaching uh, the resurrection of the dead and the redemption of the people, which was brought to pass through the power and sufferings of death of Christ. Um, now, some of this, you start asking, where's he getting all of this stuff? You know, it, if you, but if you just listen to Abinadi, we have, we've only got a portion probably of what Abinadi was saying so somehow Alma must also have been listening to some of the other things that were preached but we don't have them recorded because it's pretty detailed but I also think Alma's getting it from another source well, I think Alma was a lot like Paul though very much like Paul and he had tons of energy he was intelligent he was trying to do the right things and he but I think all the time he sensed He's a spiritual person. Yes. And he's doing what he thinks he's supposed to be doing. That's why he became a priest. So Paul talks about himself being zealous for the law. He was zealous for the law. It's about the law. So I will kill people happily. I'll hold the coats while they stone Stephen. I'm zealous for the law. I think Alma was too, right? Yes. Okay. I think that makes perfect sense. Okay. So here's Alma. Okay. Now. So, so he's going to start preaching all of these things, which would be interesting to teach a group of people. 
if you are a law of Moses Old Testament guy, because remember they've got the they've got the uh, the probably the brass plates, probably got a copy of the brass plates. What don't they have in Nephi or, or in uh, the original land of Nephi? What scriptures don't they have? Well, they don't have Malachi. They don't have the last books in the Old Testament. They don't have that. Do they have the writings of Nephi? Jacob? Why, why not? Lehi? Well, they've separated. You know, separated. They've separated. So those are in the small plates. Those are back in Zarahemla. All they've got is the, maybe a copy of the brass plates. That's why they're getting the Law of Moses. But they don't have everything taught to Nephi and Lehi and Jacob. They don't have that stuff. At least Noah didn't have it. Right. So, but here's Alma. He starts to preach, um, and and he's going to teach them. And it came to pass that as many as did believe him did go forth to a place which was called Mormon, having received its name from the king, being in the borders of the land, infested it by times and season by wild beasts. Okay. I was reaching out to uh, my. Uh, my friend in uh, Cancun is a guide down there, and he's researching the word Mormon for me in the Mayan tongue, and, and, and so I'm waiting to get that back from him. But we don't know exactly what Mormon meant. There is some Egyptian roots to it that means good or goodly. It's what Joseph attached to the word Mormon, which I think uh, there, is a, there is a goodly... Oh, there it is, seven. And it came to pass after many days there were a goodly number. Could mean a lot. What else might goodly mean? Joyful, happy, righteous, desirous. Maybe that's why. The, uh, the, the wild beasts were there. It was, it was sort of like the, the angels outside of the Garden of Eden. Maybe. Yeah, because they just knew that this was this place and there were wild beasts. Which, by the way, if they're in the, if they're in the thicket in the waters of Mormon and they're wild beasts, it also gives them a layer of protection, I guess. People aren't going to want to hunt them out and have to mess with the, it, with the jaguars and everything that are kind of in that that area, right? the outside world, it's like going, oh, that's the haunted house. You can't go in there. But if you're one of the hanks, you could go in there and you could live. And be safe. Okay, so hold on to this idea. Because this place is more, they're going to endow it with sacredness. They they are. Okay? Now, so so here's, so, so let, let, let's talk about this for a sec here. Because uh, we know what's about to happen, Right? Because uh, they're, they're about to be, uh, we know that uh, baptisms are about to occur. He's going he's gonna to move them into this thing. So I want to hop out of here for just a sec. Um, okay, let's go back to first century Israel for just a sec. Okay. I want you to notice um, this was just outside on the north side of the Temple Mount. Uh, the 
You can see the, see the, the temple mount on the, on the left there. Okay. Now, it's this area right, right here that, that people would come um, and they would come down from the north and you can see the, uh, the upper pools of uh, Bethsaida uh, that Isaiah called the upper pools. They're the pools of Bethsaida and, and those were there for cleansing uh, and then if you followed that path straight into the temple uh, you can't see it from this angle, but the, the path leading into it leads to the sheep gate. And th this is where they would bring the sheep directly onto the temple mount uh, and the lambs and everything to be sacrificed. So that's the sheep gate. Uh, there's a little gate over here near the wall that, uh, that uh, Suleiman the Great named the, uh, the lion's gate. He didn't like the sheep thing. He thought that was a little wussy. <laughs> so it's the lion's gate uh, up there. But people would go down, uh, down past the, the pool of Bethsaida and they would come into the, the temple mount. But those two pools um, is, is the exact place where uh, Jesus then uh, has the, the, uh, the lame man that's laying there by the pool of Bethsaida waiting for the angel to stir up the water so that he can be healed. Remember that? Um, because sometimes that, that water that would run be between there, there would be like air bubbles that would make its way out of the, the piping that would come down there and it would bubble up in the pool of Bethsaida. And when the water was troubled, they thought, oh, an angel did it. So suddenly, instead of it being a place of cleansing, it was a place of physical healing. Okay? Now, what's fascinating, if, if, you're, there, if you're there today... And you're looking down into what's left of the pools of Bethsaida. Uh, this is actually in the area of uh, uh, the St. Anne Church that was actually built on the site of a, uh, a healing pagan uh, temple, a Greek healing temple. Very interesting, okay? All right. But the idea was uh, in the first century that this would be called the pools of Bethsaida, uh, that it evolved into this healing place were actually anciently, uh, they were ancient uh, mikvah or mikvahot, meaning this is where we would be cleansed. Uh, we would cleanse ourselves in preparation to go up into the temple. Less of like a baptismal thing and more along the lines of washing anointings in the temple. That's probably the closest parallel, is more like washing anointings. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So they're going to come here. So, so from an Old Testament standpoint, Old Testament view, that means that you're going to somehow be cleansed as you prepare to do the ordinances and, and the cleansing. And that's, that's why when you go to places like Qumran, the whole thing is about cleansing pools because we're trying to get clean from the blood and sins of this generation that's all gone to hell and we're going to be out here in the desert and wait for the, wait for, uh, the sons of light to come and save us and you know, dump all these bad people. Anyway, so, that's, so, so there is in this, in the Law of Moses, a tradition of cleansing, I guess is what I'm trying to say. They're used to this. Now, what Mosiah, what Alma is going to do then,
He's going to start, he's going to institute the baptismal thing. But guys, let, let, me, let me start with that. Where would he get the idea to do baptisms? Not even the, I'm, before we even talk about authority, where does Alma even get the idea? This is Old Testament. We do mikvahs, we do cleansing. Where, where would the idea come to take this as a baptismal ordinance into a kingdom of believers? Where would we get that? Uh, huh? We don't know everything that, that a Benedite taught. But because of revelation. Right. Right. So it would but it would have had to come by revelation. Just like, just like Joseph Smith got it. Yes. We don't know, but it's gonna to have to come from heaven, right? So so let me take you back for just a second. Let's go back to uh okay. yeah. we know that Adam was baptized. We do. Yes. And that is very easily where it could, because we know that there was a tradition even with Enoch and stuff like that, that they were being baptized. But somehow by the time we get to Josiah, the plain and precious truths had been removed or covered up because it doesn't seem to have made it all the way there. At least in terms of what was available to the Jews. So I saw a PBS special, and I don't know how accurate it was, but it, it wasn't done by our church. It was on the House of David. Right. Yeah, because you got to ask, what what was John the Baptist doing, or John the the immerser? <laughs> you know, and and so so isn't that interesting? So what was John the Baptist doing? Okay, well, and who saw John the Baptist doing his John the Baptist thing? And Nephi, <laughs> Old Testament Nephi. So here's Second Nephi thirty one. As big as I can get it, sorry. Okay. This is 2 Nephi 31. And he, here's what he's saying. Behold my beloved brethren. So, Because think about what Nephi saw in his great vision. He's watching. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going back. I'm going to see Christ in the future. And, ooh, man, there, there's a man standing there in Jordan. And Jesus is going up to him. And he's being immersed in the... What is the... You know, and it looks like this man, John. Oh, it's John. Yeah. Angel says his name's John. John, he's baptized. He's, he's putting people in the water. They're coming back out. Uh, and then he sees, and then here comes Jesus, and he puts Jesus in the water, and then he comes back out. And then a dove comes, and, and he's like, what's he, what? He must be Jewish. He's doing the cleansing mikvah, but it's not the way that we're used to. Because it's not at the temple. What are they doing? A, you know, not washing for food for before dinner. What are, what are they doing in the Jordan? What is this thing? Okay? And, and the Spirit's going to have to say, but look at 14. Behold, my beloved brethren, thus cameth the voice of the Son unto me. So God's going to teach him. And he's going to say, after you repented of your sins and witnessed the Father, you're willing to keep his commandments by the baptism of water. Oh, there's something in this baptism thing. We've taken the cleansing of mikvahs, and we're turning it into a baptism related to sins. Oh, this is, wow. Because usually how do we get rid of sins in Israel? Oh, it's on Yom Kippur. 
You do it once a year for everybody all at once. You don't do it individually like that, but, well, this is individual. So somehow this Old Testament thing is being turned into a Christian thing. Well, that's, hmm. So he's watching, and he says, and the, and the voice comes, says, okay, after you have repented of your sins and witnessed, uh, and witnessed unto the Father by baptism. Oh, so when I'm baptized, apparently that's wit showing God that I'm willing to keep the commandments. Oh, then you know what? Then I'm going to receive a baptism of fire. That's when I really kind of get cleansed. Okay. And 15, I, I heard a voice from the Father telling me these things. Um, 17, for the gate by which you should enter is repentance and baptism by fire. Oh. Wow, where the mikvah was about cleansing, this is about entrance. Yeah. So this is at this point they're really uh, in the teachings. The people are really being separated from somebody being a mentor to their own relationship with God. That's a great way to say it. So in other words, this will be an individual thing rather than have a priest on Yom Kippur kill the kill the uh, Asazel goat for the blood uh, and spread, spread the blood on the altar for all of Israel all at once. Wait a minute, this is individual. And, th and by the way, and then he says, wait a minute, for the gate. Oh, so baptism is actually a gate into something. Wow. Wow, that's, that's really kind of cool. Uh, and then cometh the remission of your sins, how? By the water? No. By, by fire and by the Holy Ghost. Oh, and then, you've, then you're in the straight and narrow path. Oh, we just took an Old Testament thing, mikvahs, cleansing, and turned it into a Christian thing, baptism, entrance into a, it's the gate that you enter into the kingdom. Wow. That's what Nephi understand. Does all of that get to Abinadi? No. Maybe. Because when we're going to go back here over to to uh, Alma, suddenly Alma's teaching this stuff. He gets it. And he's going to say, uh, now, behold, here are the waters of Mormon. Now, look at, look at his, look at his uh, baptismal interview. Think about what we do in our baptismal interview. You stop drinking coffee? Okay, we need to delay this by a couple of weeks while you stop drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, are you still smoking? Are you shacking up with your girlfriend? Oh, we need to get you married first. Okay. We're doing all of these things, okay? Look at what look at what Alma is saying. Before we perform the baptism, let me let me see if you're ready for this baptismal thing. Look at his his baptismal interview questions. <laughs> I think they're I think they're fantastic. Ah, now as you're desirous to come into the fold of God, you want to enter in by this gate uh, to be called by his people and are willing to, there's only three of them, right? Are willing to bear one another's burdens that they may be light. Willing to bear, yeah, okay, I, I can do that one. Okay, cool, okay. Uh, are willing to mourn with those that mourn. Yep, comfort those that stand in need of comfort. I was wrong, there's four. Bear one another's burdens. Mourn with those that mourn, comfort those that stand in need and comfort, and stand as witnesses of God at all times and all things and all places you may be in, even unto death. Yeah. Okay then. Well, let's get you baptized at that point. I, I think that's fa that, that, that for Alma, 
the entrance into being baptized was about what? Change of heart, but that would be demonstrated by what? Your actions, and in this case the action is, are you loving and caring and supporting one another? You're coming into a community of believers that are going to take care of one another. Called ministry. Yeah, and that is what we're looking for. Are you willing to, to be part of this? Um, and and when, when we've had some baptisms just, just lately in our ward, that's one of those things that, we've got another, we've got another one on Saturday, we keep on coming. Um, but we're always asking, you know, and, and if I'm ever asked to, to speak, I'm saying, okay, here's the deal. Look around. These are your, these are your peeps. <laughs> Here they are, right? And here's your homies. Are you willing to help take care of them? Do you, are you willing to mourn with them when they mourn? Comfort those that stand? Yeah. Okay. Let's get you baptized then, right? Because the idea is for you to be part of a community that is going to uh, take care of each other where they are even if you wear sleeveless dresses on sac to sacrament meeting. Okay. That is, it, it's, it's about love. Now. You know, if, you know, if all of this is about individual relationships, it makes a lot of sense why we can't really judge each other because we can't. We don't have any room, do we? We can't see in somebody else's heart. No. But, but uh, justice and grace and mercy requires that I love you right where you are. Because I have no idea what's going on with you, but, uh, but what I can do is mourn with you when you're mourning. I can comfort you when, you're com when you need comforting. I can do that. Okay. Now, so, so if we go down here, but, so look how, look how th this turn then comes. That's the desire of our hearts, and he's going to be baptized. Now, let, 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 me, let me share the story that I, I've told before, and I, I apologize for those of you who've heard it before. In the late uh, 40s and late 50s, mid-50s, um, church under President McKay started to get a lot of letters from Africa. <laughs> a lot of letters. Come, to, come teach us. We want to be, we want to be Mormon. You know, we're, we're reading, really? Yeah, we got a hold of a Book of Mormon, Billy Johnson, the, the Paul of Africa. He got a hold of the Book of Mormon, uh, and he started teaching them out of the Book of Mormon. They wanted to connect with Salt Lake. So they start sending letter after letter, okay? Uh, they carved a 10-foot gold angel Moroni that they put in front of the, the pulpit <laughs> there, and and they kept sending letters, and the church wasn't really responding because at that point it's like, yeah, what do we do about the priesthood ban? We're, we're not sure. And maybe they're just poor and they want money. We're not sure. Okay. Then they started getting letters from the uh, Ghana branch, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And President McKay said, do we have a branch in Ghana? <laughs> no, it's right here on the letterhead. Oh, wow. <laughs> now what do we do? Okay. Um, so that's when they sent the secretary of the First Presidency down to, and, they, and he landed, and there were seven ministers, seven bishops of, of, that, of these branches of the church waiting at the airport. And they all wanted him to come with them. And he said, okay, I'm going to pick one. And he picks one, and he goes, and he, and, he, and he 
teaches and they and they and he tries to tell them the, the status of the church and they're he's answering questions about the church and everything and because they're trying to because they're really trying to sort out do these guys really just want some welfare aid do they really understand the gospel uh, and so he gets down explaining everything and then he asks a question any questions from the audience about what about what you would like to know Remember what the very first question these guys asked was? The very first question out of the out of the box. I got a question. Yeah. Where did Alma get his authority to baptize? At the waters of Mormon. Where did he get his authority? And the secretary at that point said, Ooh. <laughs> these guys are studying. These guys aren't in here for the they, they know their stuff. But even they were asking the question that sometimes we ask. Where did Alma get his authority from? Because what's he going to do? Because now he's going to, he's going to baptize them. Uh, and, then, and then he, he takes another, he baptizes. At that point, how many baptisms that day? 204. They're all baptized and were filled with the grace of God. I love that. We could spend a lot of time on that one. Okay, And they were called the church of God or the church of Christ from that time forward. And it came to pass that whosoever was added by the power and authority of God okay, was added to the church. And it came to pass that Alma, and here's, here's the one that, was at, that got, got him going. That Alma, having authority from God, <clears throat> what does that mean? You know, did Abinadi come back? Was there an angel? Was there... Okay. I, I think the, the, if we just kind of cut to the chase a little bit, isn't the whole story of the Book of Mormon that there are these people sitting over here, they're Christian believers, they're believing in Christ, but every time we need, the ball, need to move the ball, we've got to send an angel. King Benjamin gets an angel. Samuel gets an angel. Everybody's getting... Alma gets an angel. Alma the Younger. They're all getting angels. Angels are involved all the way through the Book of Mormon. It's an angelic book. That authority and knowledge and understanding and teaching and visions all come from angels to these guys in the promised land. I don't think there's any doubt that Alma was getting a lot of help from the other side of the veil. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned the, the blacks and the relationship to the church. And uh, when I came back from a mission in Florida, I had one of the best friends down in Brazil on this. Yeah. Brazil was the problem. <laughs> Yes. Black yeah. And when he reported that to the leaders of the church, they released him. Yeah, that's hard. And he made the comment, he says, I don't know what's going to happen, but a lot of these people don't know their ancestry when they join the church, and it's a real problem. He says, I know the Lord has to address it. It was three years later that he did. Yeah. Yeah, that blood quantum thing in, uh, in Brazil was a tough one. I don't know, 15%, maybe 20%. That's about me too much. We're trying to, they start to get into splitting hairs. And so when President Kimball is really researching this and praying about it, why well, no? And he brings in Bruce McConkie. What do we do? And he goes, Yeah, the Brazil thing's a problem. <laughs> what do we do there? Um, so, 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 but look at Alma here now. He has authority. And look, now, 
For, for a second, look, look, before, we go, before we go here, remember what King Noah was doing. Okay? King Noah is taxing the people 20%. They are getting rich. The priests are getting rich. Everybody else is struggling. Okay? Look at what Alma's going to set up here. He commanded that they should teach nothing, save it was things that he'd taught, been spoken by the mouth of the holy prophets. Ooh, okay? Commanded they should preach nothing, save it was repentance and faith. He commanded that there should be no contention one with another. Oh, wait a minute, stop. Why did Noah, King Noah, say that Abinadi needed to be killed? In addition to the fact that he said Christ would come as a man. He had two charges. One was Christ is going to come as a man. What was the, the charge that finally got him burned? The contention. It was the contention. And the That's right. You're going to stir stuff up, there's going to be contention, and you're right. Then it becomes a threat to me, right? No contention. Well, Alma's going to say the same thing. He's going to say no contention one another, but they should look forward with one eye, but look how his non-contention is. Because, by the way, I don't care who the, I don't care who the, the uh, leader is, whether it's it, uh, Hitler or Mussolini or Mao or anybody else, they don't like contention. We talked last week about Pax Romana, the, that the Caesars were gods because they kept the peace. They could keep people from contending. But the problem was if anybody did contentions, what would you do? Crucify them. <laughs> but they kept the peace. There wasn't any contention. Zion is about no contention. Doesn't mean there aren't differences, just no contention. Look at how, But remember, you've been baptized where you're going to love one another and mourn with those that mourn. Okay? having uh, hearts knit together in unity and love one another, and thus he commanded them to preach, and thus, and thus, here's, no, here's Mormon saying, so because of what they did, what happens? And thus they become the children of God. Remember to King, Benjamin, King Benjamin's people, you can say you're the children of Christ, which is also true. And he commanded them that they should observe the Sabbath day, keep it holy, uh, and there's a, there's a whole, there's one day a week. Uh, he commanded them that the priests, instead of 20%, they were going to labor with their own hands. Um, okay, so anyway, what we could we go on. on that. I just think there's a lot here. They should impart of their substance, everyone, according to what he had. He's creating a little Zion people here. And he's doing it from inspiration and guidance uh, on the fly. Now, let, 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 me just, let me just kind of finish with this. Because there's a beautiful thought here. It's in verse 30. And now, it came to pass that all this, and again, this is Mormon's commentary. This is his abridgment. And it came to pass that all this was done in Mormon. Yea, by the waters of Mormon, in the forest that was near the waters of Mormon. Yea, the place of Mormon, the waters of... Why is he doing this? By the waters of Mormon. The place, the, the, there's the place, the waters, the forest. And he just keep repeating it. And then, he, then he's going to drop this in with echoes of what Abinadi was quoting Isaiah to King Noah. 
and how beautiful are they? Now, what's the they in this case? No. Close. Let's read again. In the forest that was near the waters of Mormon, yea, the waters of Mor the place of Mormon, the waters of Mormon, the forest of Mormon, how beautiful are they? What? Yes, this place. How beautiful is the waters of Mormon? How beautiful is the forest of Mormon? How beautiful is this place? Yes, to the eyes of them, the people, who, were, who there came to the knowledge of their Redeemer. Yea, how blessed are they, they shall sing to his praises. In other words, they made Mormon sacred. And, and they would always probably, probably imagine themselves years later in Zarahemla, you know, sitting around the, sitting around the campfire late at night. And you could see them going, remember the waters of Mormon? Yeah, that was awesome. I remember when you got baptized. Yeah, I remembered. It was in that sacred place, the waters of Mormon, where we really came to know about the Savior. I loved Mormon. Yeah, I loved Mormon too. Well, I remember that. Yeah. I think it depends how you look at it, who you are, and your heart when you look at it. How many times when we see a resident in the temple? Yes. Oh, it's so beautiful. Yes. And then maybe somebody else will say, okay, it just looks like It just like a, it looks like a nice structure. Yeah. But when you think about, but the temple, I remember being in the temple. I remember in the ceiling room where I'm sealed. I remember, and we, and we place heartfelt loving gratitude thankfulness to that place where it occurred and for us I think it's the temple for them the waters of Mormon became a temple it was in that place we came to know right that we, we made what was a nice place sacred by our faith and by our love okay? not to take away from what we're saying but before I had grandchildren I had friends who had grandchildren and they would show me pictures of them and they usually were school pictures no, I, you know, you make the usual comments, and to me, they look like ordinary kids. But when I got my own grandchildren, their school pictures were beautiful. <laughs> and they're, you know, the best-looking kids ever, and don't they look... Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, it's what's in your heart and what you see with your eyes. When they talk about eyes, they can see... Yeah, and, and because of that, then we place a lot more sacred significance on something. And in our own hearts and mind, we take that which is profane, meaning worldly, and we make it sacred, meaning set apart. So they weren't saying with their spiritual They were. And so if we see, taking on your thoughts, you see your grandchildren with your spiritual eyes. Yeah. I was watching uh, watching again yesterday in the ward. We've got uh, we've got a little gal that was baptized a few months ago, and she's just she's just a sweet powerhouse, and 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 love her to death. But she was kind of I I, noticed, I, well, I walked into the chapel, and she was standing talking to the missionaries, and she's kind of looking at at those missionaries, and you could just see the love and gratitude in her eyes, like. These are missionaries. You know, they, they brought me into the gospel. They have been made sacred to me. And, and I think when we have, and I think that's the kind of significance and gratitude that you're seeing here. Uh, it's just this idea of, um, 
how, how beautiful upon the mountain, how beautiful upon the land, the, the waters of Mormon are the feet of those like Alma uh, who came to, an, brought us to a knowledge of the Redeemer. How blessed are they and we'll sing to his praise forever. I think it's so beautiful. Yeah. When, uh, when uh, we were in South Africa, the missionaries uh, were looking for somebody to teach in, in the mall. And uh, they ran into this fellow who said he would be willing to let them teach him. When they got to his house, he was a lay minister and he had found a book of Mormon with its covers ripped off. And he didn't have any idea what it was except he could tell it was scripture. Yeah. And so he had been teaching his his uh, congregation out of this uh, book. And uh, so the award uh, had a uh, barbecue, basically, which we attended, and uh, the uh, they were very excited about. They had finally found where this came from. Yeah. And I, if I remember right, uh, the uh, practically the whole congregation was baptized shortly after we headed back home. Yeah. And see if you and so even today if we were to if we suddenly had a copy of that book without the cover how sacred it would it be to their family and their generations after them. It's it's made sacred. It's made sacred because our hearts go back this is where I learned of Christ. So, yeah. I, I had uh, when I first read the scriptures all the way through all I had was a missionary copy of the Book of Mormon and of the Pearl of Great Price. And I had a, a, a Bible that I bought at some bookstore with a hardcover. It wasn't right. it was the King James Version. Right. That was a really spiritual year of my life. And I took those before my granddaughter who's on her mission right now. We went, her mom and my granddaughter and I went to uh, a restaurant to eat. We were uh, at a table at La Madeline where you could really have mm -hmm, privacy. Mm -hmm. And I took those books with me. I should. Yeah, they're sacred to you. And I told her how, what they meant to me and why I still have them and they're battered and old and written in. And she, she told me, she called me last week and told me that they were teaching somebody that they were trying to bring to baptism. And the people said, we, we just want to know that it's true before we And she said that she told them about me. That's why she called me. Oh. Strong there. And just thinking about this, the 
book without a cover was yeah. for me. It was the same thing. Isn't that amazing? I still have those books that I can't throw them away because we know how it's changed us. We know the effect that it's had. See, it's like we know the rest of the story and we go back to that origin story. That's, that's why I think forevermore, probably even in the city of Zarahemla, the waters of Mormon probably became legendary. It was, a, it was like, it's like uh, handcart time. It's like talking about uh, Martin's Cove or something and saying something really sacred and powerful happened here. Maybe we could go back and visit it on... <laughs> we'll do a trip and go visit those sites or something. So, Anyway... Um, I want to bury my testimony that that's why I said the beauty that's in here and, and, the, and the beauty that is Alma in having to create among an Old Testament law of Moses people and create a, a gospel of Christ out of them but take something like the, the Jewish rite of mikvah of, of cleansing and the Savior then says I'm going to then take that turn that into a baptismal covenant because you understand it, you get it, but that's also what it was pointing to in the first place. Same thing with Passover, Seder. You know, you're going to eat the bread and wine at Passover, and Jesus says, yeah, I'll take that, but let me make that into the sacrament, because that's what it was all pointing to in the first place. So, Savior loves to do that, but in doing that, he connects Old and New Testament together, which I think is cool. So, anyway, bear my testimony that's true, and uh, I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, can we get a closing prayer? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs>